All right, so again, we are in chapter 5 of the book of Acts. And we try to break this up into four different sections here. And um, we're going to try to tackle first a phrase that has appeared already a few times in the book of Acts. And that is the all things common phrase. And kind of look at the intent and circumstance surrounding that. And that's kind of where we'll begin with a event, which is, it says at the very end of this little section that it caused fear to spread. And I can see why. What takes place here. And so Acts chapter 5, we'll read the first 11 verses of the text. It says, But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira his wife sold a possession. He kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. And the young man arose, wound him up, and carried him out, and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after, when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that you have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at thy door, are at the door, and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet, and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in, and found her dead, and, carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things. And that will conclude that event, at least. Um, and so what we want to do with this particular thing is something that I think is a necessary thing to do. When you read across something, and it seems a little extreme... And there's a few things we've got to do because if we just did not read anything else, we just read, we popped in and you flip open the book of Acts, it hits the fifth chapter and you read the first 11 verses, you say, whoa, that's a little much. Right? But I think if we broaden the picture and we consider the context, the same with some events in the Old Testament it would be the same. If you ever get to that place and, and the thought creeps in, or the natural result of reading such a thing out of context is, God is unfair. There's something you're not seeing. And I think that's the case here. And so let's concert, consider before we look at the phrase, all things common, and whether it's something that God intends us still to do, let's look at a couple things as context. So number one, Jesus predicted the apostles would be persecuted for Christ's sake. And that's exactly what's happening over these first few chapters of Acts. He predicted in John 16, 1-4, which we've gone over, in that final discourse that he gave to the disciples. I'm just going to read a couple of verses of that. 
These things have I spoken unto you that you should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. So the first thing we learn that the apostles are coming into this situation knowing within the context surrounding this event is A, they're going to be kicked out or ostracized from the religious organization that is the predominant Jewish organization. Right? They already know they're going to be kicked out. Secondly, they also know that just like they did to Jesus, they're going to be targets, um, but they're religious targets, right? People are going to think, and this is kind of an interesting thing, people are going to think we're killing them for the work of God. In order to accomplish the work of God, they've got to be put to death. So that's one thing that we know that the apostles know walking into this situation. Furthermore, in Luke, it tells us very similar things. Uh, they're going to lay hands on you. They shall persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and to prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for not my name's sake. So they know they're going to be tried. This has already happened here, and it's going to happen, obviously, in the future in the book of Acts. And it shall turn to you for a testimony. Look to verse 16. And you shall be betrayed both by parents and brethren and kinsfolk and friends, and some of you shall they cause to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but there shall not an hair of your head perish. So, additionally what we know is going to take place and is likely happening. Jesus predicts it's going to happen at some point. And I would say within what's happened in Acts so far, we can predict it has happened. And that is, as these people were getting saved by the thousands, and they're almost all Jews, and they're going back home and they're saying to their family, hey, I'm now part of this sect of Jesus. He was the Messiah. I would say it's pretty safe to assume that there has begun to be this internal strife within their families, just like Jesus predicted. At least to some degree. How far? We don't know. But significant enough that Jesus predicts it's going to happen. And given the circumstances in the previous few chapters, I think we can safely assume it is happening at this point. On the next page, Jesus also told the apostles that Jerusalem would be destroyed, which occurred in 70 AD. So they also know the present status of Jerusalem is not a permanent one. So if you, they don't know what's going to happen, but if you own land in Jerusalem, it's going to be destroyed. Now, if you think from your vantage point that that was the case that Jesus predicted and you're convinced he's the Messiah and, you're, and, and all these things are coming to pass, which he prophesied. And then he tells, you also have this hanging on the back of your head. All this is going to be wiped out. I'm saying this just to say, these are the things that the apostles know already. And that, I think, has some explanation in what is going on here. Those who converted to what was called the way, or becoming a Christian at the time were being persecuted, having their goods seized by Roman authorities and having their lives threatened continuously. So let's look at the next bullet point to kind of explain this. As a result of living in such dire conditions, members of the Jerusalem church voluntarily chose to sell their possessions and put their money into a common account for which funds were to be distributed to meet the needs of the entire Christian community. This type of behavior is common in times of persecution or war involving any groups of people and was a product of circumstance rather than a command of perpetual Christian duty. So I would ask you this question. Do you think that's going on in Ukraine right now? Probably to some degree. 
where people are saying if they're on if they're in the middle of the war zone, property rights just suddenly seem not to matter. Where your crop line is at doesn't matter. You just pull everything together in the safest place you can. And so when I began to understand that this is not really unique to Christianity in one sense. Now, perhaps the compelling of the heart to do this is unique to Christianity, but I think circumstance has a lot to do with this need. I thought of the Warsaw Ghetto. I studied that a lot in college, and that was something that was very common in the Warsaw Ghetto in the 1940s whenever Germany overtook Poland and all those neighboring nations. Um, You know, they whittled it down until it was just a couple blocks, right, in the ghetto, and that was it. And they tried to withstand um, everything until the very end, but unfortunately died. So there's nowhere in the rest of scriptures that we see this as a perpetual command, that we should all put our common stock in one thing. Now, have there been cults which have taken things like this and done that? There have been, right, where they'll use this. And a very important point, and I, and I italicize that word, this was voluntary. We don't see commands to do this. We see in all these cases the people are willingly doing this. Barnabas in the end of the, the previous chapter and the time before, it just points out that they're doing this. That they might have all things common. And eventually we'll get to the place where we find who is responsible for disseminating those goods amongst the group. Now, if we establish that this is not a perpetual Christian command to this degree, I think that's very easily... I don't think that's going to be a hard thing to convince you of, right? That's a pretty clear thing. But I think it also leads us into kind of a discussion about the call to Christian charity among one another within a body of believers because we also see, and we'll get to this in the next few verses, the impact of such voluntary sacrificing of one's own goods for the welfare of the whole community. And... I personally think, and if you don't agree with this, that's okay. I personally think that very often the first um, or the most impressionable belief system we have is derived from assimilating to our cultural norms. And in America, we have a very individualistic idea, and I'm not necessarily condemning that. I'm just pointing it out. We're very individualistic. We're hyper-concerned with financial security as opposed to charitable giving. Whereas if you go to different places in the world, they have much more of a family structure where your goods much more fluidly flow from extended family. I think Spanish cultures in Central America are very much this way, right? Where... They're much more from the, and we're speaking in group terms here, which is always um, dangerous to do, but much more freedom of that, more charitable, it seems like to me. And so sometimes I ask myself, is my concepts of giving charitably a derivative of my American culture, or is it a derivative of the Christian culture? 
I don't necessarily, by, by saying that, I'm not implying you need to, we need to put everything in one pot and disseminate it. But to what degree do we sacrificially give and concern ourselves with the welfare of one another? If you remember in First uh, Timothy chapter 5, it tells us that if there is a woman in your home or within your family structure who becomes a widow indeed, cannot care for herself, that it's the job of the man, not the husband, but a man to take care of her. Now in our minds today, we think that's the government's job. Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, whatever, that's their job. That may be to our, we think to our financial benefit, but I think it comes also to a cost of our unity. Because I think there is a, um, well, let's look at what this says. Uh, let's just read it instead of me trying to say it extemporaneously here. However, such actions performed today, even to a lesser degree during various times of circumstantial hardship, promote unity among believers. As a group who is to be known by our love for one another, periodic, periodic acts of sacrificial giving intended to alleviate the temporary needs of the moment do much more than just that. So, we give sacrificially to help one another. It's more than just meeting the need of the moment. It accomplishes more than that. They also serve to knit our hearts together and are the evidence of our love for one another. So, I want you to think about this, and this is a broad discussion about love, but if you say, you love, if you say I love you to somebody... And their response to you was, prove it. What would you say? How would that could be to somebody close to your wife or us here in the church, right? Somebody here in the church or uh, prove it. Because what we see in God's love is that is a giving of self. It's perpetually For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And throughout Scriptures, what we see are not just exclamations of affection, but it's those exclamations of affection followed up with evidence. Here's how I love you. I'm going to show you. And I'll say this, and this is tangential here. Evidences of love are not defined by the one doing the loving. It's by the one receiving the love. So I can't with somebody who is, and we'll get to a scripture in James here in just a second. Somebody who's, as it says there, naked and destitute. And I say, I love you. And they say, well, okay, I'm naked and destitute. And I say, I love you so much, I'm going to pray for you. Can't do that. Right? Their need dictates the manner in which I ought to express my love. And I think James shows that here. If you look in the verse, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Now, again, we'll balance this out. Discussions about financial stewardship, enabling laziness, 
and other considerations on this subject are needful, but never let such considerations obscure the call for Christian charity. We are called to be sacrificial and charitable givers. I think that's something for us to always remember. People might abuse and misuse, and we have a responsibility to do our due diligence to make sure they don't. Not for our sake, for their sake. Because if we're giving people prone to laziness ways to continue being laziness, we're helping them dishonor God and disobey His Word. And so the reason why I'm not handing out $20 bills to the poor person is not because I say, well, I don't want to waste my money on that. The primary reason, listen, I don't want to enable this person to be taken further and further from God and His Word. Right? My charitableness or refusal and my due diligence is about the person, not about me. Now, so I think it's, it's appropriate to talk about, hey, is there a point where you can overextend your charitableness and be, um, not be a good steward? Absolutely you could. And you may know people like that who they give and they give and they give and it leaves them on shaky ground. That's not a good thing. No people who give, and they don't give to the best recipients. Those are all discussions that can be had about those things. But don't come up with some rule in your mind of what I will and will not give. And you're just always going to follow that little simple rule. And allow that to obscure the demand for Christian charity. In the end, I have seen very often that it is through giving of the physical that it opens up the door to the heart. That somebody is not going to listen to what I say unless they have a roof over their head first. Unless they have a full stomach. Unless there is an attempt being made to provide them a job or whatever it may be. And sometimes we can't do that. But I hope you're understanding the the balance out here. Um, Read one verse, and then we'll let you say what you'd like. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7, one that um, I think of, a verse that I personally think of often about being charitable. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. Now I think this is where it takes Christian, or it takes spiritual discernment to understand this principle. What people are often looking for, and I want you to think about this in yourself, What people often look for when they open the Bible is these clear rules. So if I said, how much should you give? We find security in 10%. That's the rule. And so we can go do that, and then we don't have to think about it anymore. I don't think that's what the New Testament teaches. There's a principle that's contained in this verse that's so important. And that is very basic. If you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. That that requires you to make decisions based upon your spiritual perceptions of people's needs that God can help you discern. And if you sow bountifully, you shall also reap bountifully. Every man according as he is purposed in his heart, so let him give. Again, we could, we could talk about all these verses. There's so much here. Not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth the cheerful giver. I mean, that, those two verses do not encapsulate some of the most 
clear teaching on giving in the whole Bible. You don't do it because you're going to feel guilty because I'm going to get up at the pulpit and make you feel guilty about giving. That's not why you give. I would prefer you not give if that's the incentive to give. Here's as it purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or out of necessity. I think what these people were doing and why Ananias and Sapphira were killed for their deed ultimately, and we'll talk about the broader context of that here in a minute, is not that they didn't sell all they had and put it into the pot. It's that they sold it. They lied about how much they sold it for. And then they put it into the pot and said, we've done the same thing that Barnabas and everybody else has done. And if you consider, if everybody in this room has sold everything we have and we all put it in the pot to care for one another, and then you hear a whisper that one of us has hid some back, do you think that would have the potential to disrupt the unity of the body? Absolutely. It would then tempt somebody else. Well, they got away with it, so maybe we'll do the same. And that would disrupt the unity. Well, it was this unity and oneness that was bringing God's spiritual power and changing Jerusalem. And so at the core, what I see Ananias and Sapphira doing is their actions are possibly dividing this unified spirit that the church has. And God said, listen, there is so much going on, so much power and communion that I am having with the early church as a result of this one accordness and this one heartedness that I am not going to risk that being disrupted. And so I'm going to take you and remove you from the equation. And now we have oneness again. And so I see this situation as one where God is preserving the unity of the church so they can continue to serve and preach the gospel the way they are. Perhaps one of you have a different interpretation or understanding of how these verses and the intent of them. Anyone? Anything about this story where you say, I don't know, this question I have, a thought I had about it, how I've always interpreted it. So in the second to last bullet point, let's ask this question because I'm always looking for points of application to us. So, and I think this is a necessary thing in our day that we have to face, we have to confront, and it's come up at our deacons meeting now for over a year, and frankly, I've just said I'm not ready for it yet. We got we to face it at some point, but if we have sin in the body that is disrupting the oneness of the church, what do we need to do? I think the Bible gives us a clear... First, try to provoke them to repentance. So that they, and I, I, I see what Peter asking her that question is an attempt to permit her to come back to them. She doesn't, he does not just say, look what you did, you're dead. He asks her, are you going to do what your husband did? She does. Now, to me, so the question I ask is, what can we learn from this situation as a church? Do you think that God did this to primarily preserve the unity of the church? So 
God shows us in His Word. We try to provoke them to repentance so that we can be back as one body trying to serve Him. And then, if they're not willing to concede to that, there's a process that Jesus identifies and Paul um, reaffirms in the New Testament that those people are to be outside of our body. We don't kill them, right? We just exclude them from the body. Kenny, you got a comment or a question? I thought you said they were under extreme circumstances the reason they were doing this. Mm -hmm. We're not under extreme circumstances. Correct. So that's why we're not selling all of our goods. No, I mean, we're not kicking people out and killing them. Correct. We're not kicking them out and killing them. But there's still a process. There is a a standard that God has for His churches, church members to attain to, right? That if people will not be provoked to repent of those actions and come back, then they're to be excluded from the body. And then once they repent, and it's not to say, hey, we want to kick you out of here because we don't like you. It's God has a standard that's explicitly spelled out. 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5. Cannot do this and be a member of the Lord's body. And if you do, He's commanded us, we've got to exclude that person with the understanding that as soon as they repent, we want to welcome them back in. Because at the core, it's not about us being better than other people. It's about provoking people to repentance. And if somebody has this illusion that, hey, I can be in good standing and harmony with God's people despite the fact that I have specific sins which God has said, I do not want that in the body. And the reason? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So if we permit this here, it's going to spread. So one of the examples that he gives in the New Testament is sexual immorality. So if a person is guilty of fornication, you not think among young people that'll spread? Absolutely. And so what the church is to do is to go to that person, try to provoke them to repentance, And if they come to the church and they say, listen, I did wrong and I have repented to God and I am sorry if I have brought a disgrace upon the Lord's name because I'm a member here. Because we also run the risk of if a person is, we'll say, a fornicator and they're out running in the world and people know they're a member here, what is the world going to do and or rather the world is going to use that as a reason to hate God and hate His people. Because they say, you're a bunch of hypocrites. You proclaim this moral standard and you don't even attempt to live by it. Rather, if the church can say, okay, you've done the wrong. They've repented of that wrong and they come and say, I'm sorry. I've repented to the Lord. I've made peace. Then it is the obligation of the church to forgive that person, never exclude them from the body when they're repentant. And so if somebody comes to me and says, you know what? Your member was guilty of of the sin. I could say, you're right, they were. But they came before the body and said, I have have violated God's word and I've repented for that. And I want to ask your forgiveness. And the church extended forgiveness. So you're right, I'm glad that they're a part of our body and I'm not ashamed of them being a part of our body because they've done something and they've repented for it. That opposed to you just go live any way you want to as an ambassador of the Lord, and then he or his character is accused of things reflective of your behavior. And so this, um, to me, is a first example of a precedent 
right? And there's more we could talk about that. Somebody else have a comment or a thought? So, we see here now this progression. Chapter 1, they have pressure put on the church about leadership in the body. Right? Matthias or, um, what was the other person's name? Was it Matthias and, what's that? Joseph, that's correct. Matthias and Joseph. Chapter 2, they're confronted with false accusations of drunkenness. Chapter 3 and 4, outside through persecution. And now chapter 5, Satan's attempting to creep in through covetousness within the body. So we're trying to keep a running track of, look at all that Satan is trying to do to get in. And notice, and I didn't notice this until I was reading it just now, verse 3. Why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to thine own? So we find that Satan was involved in this. He's actively attempting to sow discord in the body. And it was through prompting thoughts and desires of covetousness. Now, I don't know about you, but that, that kind of scares me a little bit. That Satan would try to sow discord by prompting thoughts of whatever, covetousness. So, I want you to think back on it on, throughout your church life. And I'm not condoning, excusing any sin that either this church or any church you've been a member of has dealt with in the past. I'm not excusing the sinner. There's, there's always situations that are more complex than can be simplified into one simple statement. However, what if part of the perpetrator's failure was prompted by Satan? Like think of a young person who, promiscuous, as if that's not something that's common to our day. Do you not think that Satan wants that and to promote that and that with the little devices that our kids have, he is not, you know, I've been thinking about this probably way too much, but reels, you guys know what reels are? Some of you don't even know what an iPhone is, but reels, you know, uh, one of the things that I've thought is so dangerous is that, you know, with, with YouTube, with other things, you are choosing what to watch. With a reel, you have no idea what's coming next. And I'll bet that every person in this room who has done that, one has popped up, and the first word was an expletive, or the first sight was a woman that was completely indecent, and they're what? I don't know how long they are, five, ten seconds long? And it can, it, but listen, what I'm saying is this. I don't control what I'm watching in those set, situations, right? Well, they pop up, right? And it is there. And they pop up randomly. And so I think you have to ask yourself the question. Do you not think the prince in the power of the air sees an incentive in trying to get involved in that? I think so. Go ahead. Absolutely. Ads on the side of screens, whatever it is. But aren't we all sinners? That's what I got to, I'm asking. Because mm-hmm. I mean, the way you're saying is that we're not. Some of us are. Nope. Are. And I think this is a bigger discussion about 
church discipline, the questions you're asking. I'm happy to go at some point down that, that line of thought with you. It's not that everybody's not a sinner, because we are. I think what the Bible identifies as things that are not permitted in the body are things that are often systemic. So a lifestyle of something that it's not just, you know what, I saw something I shouldn't. That's not what we're talking about here. Well, I mean, I'm Sure. And so, but I think there's a difference in doing that and being caught in an adulterous relationship. Absolutely. Right? And so I think we could, those are obviously two extreme examples, and I gave that to say, there is a line that God drawed and said, hey, you're going to sin, but there are certain systemic things that you can do as a lifestyle that I will not permit to be identified with in my body. And there are other things, too, that are of not just systemic nature, but of an extremely heinous nature. I might kill somebody one time. It's only once. It's not systemic. But the Lord's name and His church's name does not need to be linked with that. And yet, that's not saying, you're excommunicated, so you're going to hell. That's not what that means. Right? Because that's what the Catholic Church has done. The Catholic Church has made the word what we use, exclusion. Excommunication means you're going to hell. Not the same thing. That's not what we're saying here. And secondly, we're not saying you're excluded. There's no path back. Good luck. No, we're saying we're doing, A, what God told us, but B, what God requires of us as all sinners. And that is repentance. And we can't look on the heart. However, if I'm in an adulterous relationship... I get excluded from the church. I come back and apologize. And somebody raises their hand and says, "Um, are you still seeing the woman? And I say, well, yeah. Then you can deduct, I've never repented. (laughs) Right? And so, again, that's that's a thing I'm happy to get into maybe at a different time. Yep. Somebody else have a comment or thought about these things? Is there a scene in the day? What's that? A scene in the day? I would say, John, go ahead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Look here real quick. What verse you're referencing? Hit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hit me cold. I'm not sure. I'd have to look at that a little closer. Maybe it's... Um, Saying you tithed a certain amount when you didn't, right? <laughs> like Ananias and Sapphira. No, I'm kidding. Um, I'll have to look at that. I'll have to look at that. So I'm not sure. Somebody else have a thought about this uh, situation with Ananias and Sapphira? All right, now let's look at the next four verses because to me, or five verses, because there's a big... Um, effect here and I think that's what we have to consider within this context is so this thing occurred this sin was not permitted in the body and as a result God continued to be with the body right and I think that's a notable effect that we get in the next five verses and by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. So now notice their gathering place here. They're in Solomon's porch. 
porch. And of the rest, durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about into Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. So a couple things that we'll point out here. Immediately following what seems to be drastic measures taken by the Lord to dispel the divisive actions of Ananias and Sapphira, Luke emphasizes the effects of these events. God continues to anoint the apostles with power to perform miracles. The Christian community continues to meet in the epicenter of Jewish worship and preach the name of Jesus. Great numbers continue to join the church. Notice it makes a point to say in verse 14, multitudes both of men and women. This seems to add supporting evidence to the last week's reference to 5,000 men being saved were only males. In this text, the word aner for men and, uh, I don't know how to pronounce that, gune for women are used. So again, I purposely looked that up to see, hmm, that's interesting. It would seem like a strange omission for one to have two references so close together. Because we talked a little bit about last week how it seemed like 5,000 men were saved. So this seems to add some support to that. The work of Peter and the apostles are spreading throughout Jerusalem to such an extent that their reputations precede them. People lay lay on the streets hoping that Peter's shadow will pass over and cure them. So... To me, that statement reveals the extent to which the apostles had an effect in, or, or I won't say the apostles, the Lord had an effect in Jerusalem. I don't know that there's another statement in the book of Acts that reveals how impactful this was. People are just putting their loved ones out on the front steps of their house, hoping that when this big crowd comes by and Peter's shadow might go over them, and by his shadow just going over them, they might be healed. Now, again, that's not saying that's what happened, but it's saying that's how much hope and anticipation that the people of Jerusalem, and then it said later, all the cities round about Jerusalem were sending people in. So, some pretty incredible things happening here. And one of the many reasons why we'll say that Pentecost... uh, was a unique one-time event that will never happen again. But um, Let's see. And then finally, people from surrounding areas also come to Jerusalem in hopes that they too will be blessed by the healing power of God through the apostles. So quite extraordinary things going on here. And of course, so notice the, the chain link of succession here. You have God stopping sin in the body and as a result, preserving unity in the body. Unity to one another and unity to Him. As a result of that oneness, God continues to commune with them with great power. And there's a display of that all around about Jerusalem. And they're affecting many people. And as a result of that, persecution arises. And that's the next step here that we get in 17 verses 32. Then the high priest rose up, high priest rose up and all they that were with Him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation, and laid their hands on the apostles, and put them in the common prison. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors, and brought them forth, and said, 
Go, stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest came and they that were with him and called the council together and all the senate, that's just the Sanhedrin, of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and found them not in the prison, they returned and told, saying, um, sorry, I lost my spot. The prison truly found we shut with all safety and the keepers standing without before the doors. But when we had opened, we found no man within. Now when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they doubted of them whereunto this would grow. Then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the man whom ye are put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then went the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring the man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witness are his witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. So number of things here, just to make sure we got the story. So number one, as a result, now remember the apostles, and one of the things I love about this is that, and it says this word in the book of Acts over and over, the boldness. I think a result of being spirit-led is a lack of fear very often. Or maybe not a lack of fear, maybe boldness is a better way to put it. In this sense, um, step by step, and maybe you've experienced this to a lesser degree in your life, there's been times where I have been crippled with fear from talking to somebody about the Lord. And then there were times where the Holy Spirit led me to and suddenly I was without fear. And I had a confidence and a clear thought. I might have spent years thinking, well, if I'm in that situation, I'll say this and I won't say this and I'll say this. And then I get in that situation and nothing that I planned is coming out. And I'm not afraid and I'm not conscious of all the consequences. I'm just trying to speak to the person what the Lord wants. And I think here we see... What I love about one of this, they put him in prison. The angel opens the door and he says, go back to the temple. He doesn't say, go escape for your life and hide and start an underground church that you might go right back to the temple and keep preaching the gospel. And so that's what they do. And when they gather together and the Sanhedrin's going to try them, they're not in the prison. And I love this. They're, as they're talking about what's going on and what do we do? Somebody walks up and says, hey, you know those guys that you're looking for? They're in the temple and they're preaching Jesus again. And what I love about this is, and this is something that Kathleen and I have talked about in regards to, uh, and I think I've talked to Brother David about this here recently some, is there seems to be some in the Christian American culture this attempt at times to like make a ministry. Like you hear these famous preachers that have some ministry. And at times what I have been fearful of is that it becomes contingent on marketing schemes and their own oratory and personality 
and growing, growing and growing. And I'm not even saying these, these Benny Hinn types that we talked about a few weeks ago. I'm saying people who I really believe in their right intentioned and they're really trying to serve the Lord as they understand it. But they almost get caught up in the ministry of it. And one thing I love about this is that there's not a plan. There's not like a, hey, if they do this, we're going to do this. The plan is this. Preach Jesus to everybody. And if you're imprisoned, preach Jesus. And if you're on trial, preach Jesus. And if you're free, preach Jesus. And the moment that I think we begin to, you know, use man's wisdom and devices to start, in our minds, scheming and furthering this and that and this, it's just dangerous. It's just dangerous. I'm not saying it's wrong. I could just see it taking a life of its own. Here, preach Jesus. And when they come out and the officers take them. Now, one thing I point out in the outline that is kind of curious so the, the temple officers had guards, right? And those guards would apprehended people on behalf of the Sanhedrin. Well, remember, this exact same office was the ones that apprehended Jesus in the garden. And so my curiosity was, we're a few months away from that. Were these the same men that went and apprehended Jesus that are now come at the temple to apprehend Peter? Because it makes a point in here saying, They didn't hurt them. They weren't punching them along the way. They weren't mistreating them along the way because they were afraid if they did, they were going to be stoned. That's how big Jerusalem was now a Christian community. They were following Peter and the, the power, in essence, was now in Peter and these men's hands. And they asked these two questions, you know. Didn't we tell you to knock this off? And I love, here's what Peter does. He gives one sentence of justification of what he did. We ought to obey God rather rather than men. That's all he says about it. Which harkens back to what he said before. Remember what he said in the previous chapter? You judge whether it's right for us to obey God or men. So he's just giving them the same answer he did before. It's better for us to obey God rather than man. And then he goes right back to Jesus. And he begins to preach Jesus to them again. So this is the third or fourth time that he is just preaching Jesus to these people. Because in the end, I think it reveals Peter's heart. He's not looking to get absolved of this crime. He's not looking to escape punishment and death. I don't even think, like these men think, he's looking to get them in trouble with the people. He's wanting these people to be saved. And so he is continuously telling them the message of the gospel. And I think there's a lot of example that we could glean from this in our own lives with people that we try to reach. There's a lot of peripheral things. Most of those peripheral things that sometimes we argue about on a morality scale is not a saving message. It's a message that's going to separate us. And so, this to me, Peter, sets sets a good example of this. Somebody have a thought about this whole incident here or something that you've noticed that we've not pointed out? I was just going to say, 
when you were talking about the response and the witness of the Holy Ghost and at the boldness that God gives them, it drew me back to Mark 13, 11, or yeah, 13, 11, about when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what you shall speak, or neither do you premeditate whatsoever shall be given to you in that hour that speak ye, for it's not ye that speak to the Holy Ghost. Mm -hmm. And just like the few times I've been in situations where the Lord has really helped me, and you kind of walk away and you're like, holy cow. Mm -hmm. I'm so thankful you did that because none of that was in my brain before it came out of my mouth. Mm -hmm. It can't be replicated. You don't prepare for that in one sense. Jesus uh, had much, his words were much fewer, but the attitude there seems to be kind of the same statement when he was thinking of himself. Absolutely. I want to point out something else about this um, account that I'm not saying is like a, a spiritual rule because I don't think it is. But I want to point out the connection between obedience and God's intervention. Um, I think very often we think of God miraculously intervening in a, in a place where we're at a, a point of desperate need or sin. So, a simplifying thing that I even put in the outline. I think a lot of churches today could say, we have not, the last two or three generations, effectively evangelized the community. Okay, And I think holistically around churches that we fellowship with, having traveled for the five years before I came here, that's an observation I would make unreservedly. That almost every church that I went to did not have a robust evangelistic attitude in the community. How are we reaching these people? And what are we doing to spread the gospel to these people? And if you do that for 20 or 30 or 40 years, what do you think the likely result of that is? Well, your numbers diminish. Your power with God diminishes because you're not filling His great commission. And then you're left at a place where many of our sister churches are at where we got 15 people coming. And we're all but dead. And the morale is, was gone 20 years ago. And the hope was gone. And then very often we see the faithful few. And so I'm not going to beat up on the faithful few. They're the ones that are trying and they're hanging in there and they're um, not... And we think of, I'm going to call out and pray and maybe God will just intervene. I'm not going to say that can't happen because it can. I think we also see an example in Scripture, however, where God miraculously intervenes when people are obedient. And that's the kind of plea I feel much more comfortable making to God than one from a place of disobedience. Or in other words, Peter, what he is doing here is what God has called him to do. Right? He is going boldly and he's preaching the gospel and he's, he's not afraid and he's not backing down and he's doing exactly what God tells him to do. And as a result of that, persecution arises and he's in prison. In that situation, would you not feel much more comfortable saying, Lord, I need you to intervene. 
versus a situation like Jonah. I'm going to do everything but obey God, and now I'm going to pray, Lord, please have mercy. I think very often, at least in my mindset, I find a gravitation, or I've heard more talked about in the sense of, we've disobeyed, let's pray for a miracle. But let's flip that on its head and say the opposite. There's also a connection here of the apostles are obeying God. And as a result, God is intervening because he has a will that he wants done. And I'm not saying his deliverance was necessarily predicated on their obedience. All I'm saying is, I think from our standpoint, we need to strive for the one above the other. Lord, we're striving to obey you. And as frail as our attempt is, and I have great respect for the people who go to nursing homes, go to Salvation Armies, go to you know, alcohol and drug facilities and spread the gospel and preach, and maybe they come up empty. Right? Maybe nobody's that they know of or we know of ever converted by it. At least they're obeying the Lord. Like, at least they're going. And... That jumped out at me as I was studying this, and there's a couple examples I give of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Abraham offering up Isaac, God's deliverance with Noah, the miraculous you know, miracles that Moses experienced often. Um, something to think about, at least something that I've, I've, I've thought about here in this. Anyone else before we keep going here? Okay, just a few more minutes, and we'll be done. And we'll get to our last section here. All right, so let's go ahead and turn to the last page here, or page six. And I've been warned there's a name in here that we might pronounce differently. It starts with a G. So how do you say it? <laughs> how, how does everybody say that G word? Gamalia. Gamalia, okay. <laughs> Gamalia. Well, just so you know, that is not how his name is said. All right? <laughs> it's Gamaliel. <laughs> no, all right. So when they heard that, this is verse 32. When they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named G, a doctor of the law, had a reputation among all the people and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space and said unto them, you men of Israel, take heed to yourselves. What you intend to do is touching these men. For before these days rose up, uh, somebody want to help me out? Judas? <laughs> Cletus? No. <laughs> Boasting himself to be somebody to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves, who was slain, and all, as many as obeyed him, were scattered and brought to naught. After this man rose up, Judas of Galilee, in the days of the taxing, and drew away much people after him, he also perished. And all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. 
But if it be of God, ye can overthrow it, lest haply ye be found even to fight against God. And to him they agreed, and when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. All right, so a few things here. Um, It says, When they heard him preaching Jesus, they were cut to the heart. Um, I take that as they were cut to the heart with guilt. Is that how you understand that? How do you understand that? Because their response, notice their response is anger. They're ready to kill him. So whenever we talk in analogy forms, I always like to get to what does that mean? When we say cut to the heart, would you say that's a guilt? Anybody? I always took it, I mean, I could very little be wrong, but I always thought they were offended. Okay, offended, is that how some of you understand that better? Is they're offended by what he's saying, that they're preaching Jesus as the Messiah, and certainly that would be an offensive thing to them? Laron, you have a thought? Furious, so there's an anger. I think that matches their actions. Mm-hmm. It's just like I said, the, the God's word is like a two edged sword. It mm-hmm. cuts in and out. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think they were tricked and they don't like it, you know. Mm-hmm. They retaliated. I almost think of it as a situation where somebody accuses you of something and you know that you're that they're right and it makes you that much more angry mm-hmm. that what they're accusing you of you know you're guilty of mm-hmm. it makes that that's almost what I imagine it as in my head okay being defensive yeah right get... like getting mm-hmm. the thing that kills me is everything that they witnessed when Jesus was dying the earthquake when they, when they witnessed the rending of the veil all of these things and it's just like if you can't put two and two together you're just that hardened in heart from you don't want to see it Um, I was downtown with Sherry in Atlanta when we were going to a show somewhere I don't know what we were doing and there were a group of Messianic Jews they were waving their pamphlets Jews for Jesus Jews for Jesus Sherry of course was Jewish with her I have never seen someone so enraged from zero to full throttle, mm-hmm. veins popping, enraged, just like that. Mm-hmm. Get out of my face, waving her arms. Mm-hmm. It was the strangest thing to see. And at first, I was like, oh, this is embarrassing. Oh. And then I realized why she was so enraged. That's interesting.
you know, from the teaching she'd had during her life program to react this way mm -hmm. to, to Jesus. Think about how, uh, and I've, I've talked to, you know, friends that were uh, Church of Christ, and, you know, they believe that you can be saved without baptism. You get into a discussion with them on it, and they're programmed to get angry. Mm -hmm. And you can tell, I mean, even if they're trying to control it, that's their program. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to make sure that, that whatever we do, we're led by the Spirit, and mm -hmm. we don't fall back on our program. Because, mm -hmm. like it or not, there's a whole lot of program in, in Missionary Baptist Church. Mm -hmm. So, it's something that Guard against. You know, we don't. I mean, we we're supposed to walk in the light of the spirit and not of our own. Mm -hmm. so. I'm sure she was programmed, but she also was open-minded enough and modern enough that she wanted me to tell Eric all of my Christian stories. Mm -hmm. And so when we'd come home, I mean, I brought him here just like he was my kid, and I brought him to the Christmas program, and he's. Four, maybe, just shy of four. And the first thing he leans over and says, Who is Jesus? I'm like, mm -hmm. don't worry, don't worry, I'm gonna tell you all about him. Mm -hmm. Don't worry. Mm -hmm. And I did as much as I could. All right, here's another question for you Who is Gamaliel? Who is he? His name has come up, it's gonna come up. Anybody? He was a teacher. He did, and whose teacher was he? We know for a fact. He was Paul's teacher. Right? Now, to me, that's an important consideration here. Notice the open-mindedness of Paul's teacher. As opposed to all of the other men on the Sanhedrin. Might that not explain some of Paul's attitude? As to some degree. And here's why I say that. He was obviously breathing out threatenings and slaughter. So I'm not saying he was just, the moment that evidence came of Jesus, he was just grabbing it. Right? It seems like he, but a question I would ask is, do you think the evidence he had is on par with the evidence that these people had? I would say yes. It's different type. But what Gerald just brought up, the veil of the temple was rent. The, the, the sky was dark for hours on Jesus' crucifixion day. I mean, you start stacking up all the evidences. Peter on Pentecost, speaking in other languages, healing that's going on all around both by Jesus a notable miracle to the extent like we talked last week. They could not deny it. They were silenced by it. They knew that he healed him. So here's what I'm saying. Obviously, to me, the evidence that they had, in my opinion, exceeded the evidence Paul had, even though it was extraordinary evidence he had. Jesus appears to him with the light and speaks to him. That's extraordinary and supernatural. I'm not going to discount that. It's also a one-time thing. So, to me, I can see a world where you, without a dream, that it, you know, I don't know, you could, you could maybe try to write that off. 
With these men, it's over and over and over. Regardless of who you think is most, I'm bringing that up just to say, Gamaliel is somebody who's open-minded. He's saying, hey, there's two other occurrences where there was somebody who had a big following, and God, notice that he puts it in the hands of providence. God either allowed them to be killed or dispersed the other following. If this is of God, God will cause it to exist, and you don't want to be found fighting against God. So to me, I read Gamaliel's words by saying, the jury is still out on this Christian thing, on Jesus being the Messiah. Now I see that as a huge concession on Gamaliel's part. Huge. And those are the people that I find great hope in today. I don't, I don't want somebody, because you can weave together some convincing evidence, just say, okay, I'll believe because of what you said. What I ask of anybody that I try to talk to about the Lord is, just hear me and consider it. Just open your heart and ask God. Don't believe me because you like me or trust me or I've got some convincing argument. Take what I've said, keep your heart open, and go and pray to God. And then wait for Him to convince you. Now I even say that, Meaning, I don't want people to just believe it because I'm saying it. I don't. And you say, well, yeah, but that could dispel people from coming and that could be convinced out of it. No, I just believe that if anybody is going to be truly convinced to the degree that is necessary to find salvation, God alone must do it. And so I gladly put those people and say, listen, just hear me. Even in your mind, like I'm not saying audibly hear me, even in your mind as I'm speaking, don't allow, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, to always just pop up in your head. Arguments pop. Just hear what I'm saying in full. Go pray about it. And then if you're honest heartedly praying about it, I believe there is an independent agent. Somebody, what I call God, will intervene in your heart to a degree that an honest-hearted person will be convinced. That's my opinion. It seems like Gamaliel is doing that, keeping an honest heart, keeping an open heart. And I just find it somewhat informative that Paul the Apostle was a student of his, that there's that connection made there. Um, It also leads me to the next step, which is to say we've got to be very careful to those people who follow us. If you're a parent, your um, attributes, and I would say particularly as it relates to being soft or hard-hearted to things, being a skeptic and a cynic right off the get-go versus charitable and gracious and attentive and listening, raising little people under that, it's going to have an effect on them. When I was a teacher, I taught government, and that's one of the things that I despised about, the attribute I despised about some of my coworkers is they used their classroom as a way to promote their agenda and their political ideology. And then the next year, I would get many of their kids, and it was just disappointing to me because 
built into the framework of their understanding of simple things like the Constitution was an agenda they didn't even know was there. And so very often as I was teaching things and trying to be as unbiased as I could, their questions would arise out of an extremely partisan angle. I'm not saying slightly, I'm saying extremely. And it became an obstacle even in just teaching basic facts that become an obstacle. It's the same way with us and our children. Like there are certain things that we can teach and advocate that and attitudes that we can have that can just be dangerous in them. I like here Gamaliel is not like that. He's not trying to get them to just do what he wants. He's trying to be um, open-hearted. And I just found it interesting that he is um, was Paul's teacher. Anybody else? We've done a little long tonight, but we'll get done with this this uh, chapter. All right, and the last question that at some point we'll deal with, because I think it's appropriate to deal with, is they're freed. They've been instructed not to go out and preach Jesus anymore. They're beaten. And we'll have plenty of time to talk about being persecuted and rejoicing in it in later chapters, so we'll not get to that here. And they refuse to comply with the government's mandate, which seems particularly relevant to now is that now that we're past much of that stuff, quagmire, that we went through for three years, even setting aside COVID and everybody's opinions about COVID, set all that aside. But when it comes to the government having jurisdiction to tell us what to do as it relates to our worship, set aside the First Amendment. Let's say it doesn't exist because it didn't exist here. I think it would be a wise thing for every church to go back, look at our handling of not COVID, but what do we believe our obligation and duty is as believers, and where does our allegiance lie, and to what extent? Because I personally don't believe we just completely disregard the government and say, well, it doesn't matter what they say, we're going to do whatever we want. I don't think that. But to what extent do we obey and not? Because... Here, they disobey, they go back to the temple, and they go into everybody's house preaching and teaching Jesus, despite being explicitly taught not to by their leaders. And so I think here, uh, maybe one of the next times that we meet, we'll, we'll kind of bring that discussion front and center, because I think as a church, that's a needful discussion to have as, as our culture shifts away from such a liberating view of freedom of expression. And worship is, what do we do? What happens if, you know, you lose your, your non-for-profit status if you preach certain doctrine? See, that's a long way off. No, it's been talked about by two presidents in the last out of three. So what we got to talk about is, is that, you know, things that we'll have to face seem relevant in this uh, to some degree.